Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. I'm thankful that you are with me again today as we continue our studies of the great book of Revelation. We are studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter of this last book of the Bible. So take your Bibles, if you would, to chapter number 19. Chapter number 19. We just finished in our last episode, chapter 18, and we're beginning a new chapter. And we only have uh, really four chapters left to study. So we are coming to the end of this great uh, book of Revelation, but there's still some very important things to cover. We kind of hit a milestone when we come to chapter 19 because we're really basically at the end of the tribulation period. This is the main section I've been telling you about. Really from chapters 4 through 18 is the main Uh, body of the book of Revelation uh, that deals with the seven-year period of time chronologically that we call the tribulation period. We get that from mainly from the Old Testament passage in Daniel uh, and calling it the 70th week of Daniel, uh, of uh, uh, Daniel's prophecy about the end time events. And we really have covered Uh, from chapter 4 to 18, all those events that lead now to the climax uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, which we've already looked at. It's just been found a little earlier in this book of Revelation, which we call the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to get really into the heart of that uh, event as we get uh, closer to the end of chapter 19, actually. But from 4 to 18, we've been going back and forth from scenes in heaven to scenes on earth, terrifying judgments, a horrible persecution against Christians by the Antichrist. Remember, you'll have to take the uh, number of the beast to buy, sell, or trade, and, and we see God's wrath in the forms of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vile judgments falling upon the, the wicked and so on. It's a, it's a horrifying time. That's why we urge people, come to Christ now. Don't wait. And we firmly believe, I firmly believe, the Bible teaches that if you have heard the gospel and had an opportunity to be saved prior to the rapture, the catching up of all of God's people, all Christians, you will not have a chance to believe after that. You will be blinded by the truth of the Antichrist and follow his lies into eternal damnation. And so we urge people. That's why Jesus commanded us. He didn't suggest it. He didn't make it an option for the church. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said in Matthew to baptize the converts and to bring them into the the mainstream of, of the church life to teach them whatsoever he has commanded. Well, let's jump right into chapter 19 now. And remember, we saw the demise of Babylon, chapters 17 and 18. I think it's Both uh, chapters are speaking of the same entity, just at a different view, more or less a different perspective. It's still this final world system that has really existed back uh, since the Tower of Babel, really, in the Old Testament in Genesis 10 and 11. It's a false religious system, but it has economic and political and governmental structure to it. We think it will be headquartered. Uh, at least in the tribulation period in in Rome under Roman Catholicism. We cannot say for sure what place the Pope would have, whatever or whoever that Pope is at the time. Uh, we can't say exactly that. We don't have enough detail. But I do believe that the system itself 
will exist in Rome. It was pictured in Rome in chapter 17, and its demise that was really stressed more in chapter 18 will be a shock to the rest of the world. The Antichrist will use this one world church, this one world spiritual system headed up in Rome by the by Roman Catholicism, but it'll really uh, consist of all the world's religions, at least the major religions of the world. There may be uh, we think a backlash from the Eastern cultures, the Far East. Uh, many of those are uh, very different than Western religions, Western thought. So it's either atheistic or in some other form. But nonetheless, we think most of the world's religions will come under an umbrella uh, of this one world system. Remember, it's the woman that rides atop the beast, we saw in chapter 17. Uh, and so she will be destroyed quickly and totally, and in fact, while the rest of the unsaved world is shocked and in, in some way sorrowed by her demise, uh, we saw at the end of chapter 18 where God tells his people to rejoice uh, in heaven and in earth at the fall of this uh, wicked system. And we'll actually pick up on that theme basically as we begin chapter uh, number 19. So let's begin as I always do. I'll read the text with you beginning in chapter number 19 and verses 1 through 6. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again, they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise God, or praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Well, we see a lot of hallelujah. <coughs> pardon me, a lot of hallelujahs in this uh, beginning passage in chapter 19, and it's really a continuation of the celebration that we saw at the end of chapter 18 when Mystery Babylon is destroyed. And we see that's exactly who uh, this passage is referring to and why there's such joy and celebration. Uh, because in verse 2, it says, for true and righteous are his judgments. In other words, God is right. He is, he is justified in destroying this, this false system, again called the great whore. That's a, that's a graphic physical term to speak of a spiritual adultery, a spiritual unfaithfulness in this group that would call itself Christian, dare to call itself the bride of Christ, and it would not be, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. Remember, this is not physical, though the language is physically used. It's symbolic of a spiritual uh, unfaithfulness to truth, to God, uh, an apostasy, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Here again, we're, we're uh, confronted with the fact that this system will have killed uh, many, many of God's people. And we have shown, and I've uh, spoken about already in earlier episodes, um, about the documentation proving Catholicism's uh, part in killing many, many, I think in the millions 
people who claim only a few thousand died, I think is a farce and a disgrace and a lie uh, to lessen the magnitude of things like the Crusades and the, and the Spanish Inquisition. That was only two well-known aspects of the Dark Ages. Uh, there's documentation like the book I'm looking at right now entitled The Martyr's Mirror that uh, displays the killing of Christians way back into the uh, 5th and 6th centuries and all throughout that Dark Age period, and even into the Reformation times and into the 1800s. Some don't realize that the Spanish Inquisition lasted into the 1800s. We're talking only a couple hundred years ago. And so uh, that's what this group is said to have been guilty of. And so God says for all those in heaven, he says, in heaven he heard a great voice after these things. We're kind of continuing in a time frame here. John heard. He hears all this great choir in heaven singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And again, they said hallelujah. There it is again, verse 3. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Now, again, we're not exactly sure how this is possible, but there's some kind of everlasting remembrance of this system being punished and judged. We'll leave that to God, how that can actually be carried out. But I do know this, she is punished and destroyed completely. And notice who else rejoices in heaven. Uh, the four and twenty elders, remember, and the four beasts that we saw earlier in the book. They've been kind of off the scene for a while. Here they are still in heaven, and they're worshiping God on His throne. He sits on His throne. This is the Father, and we believe the Son, the Lamb. Remember, we saw the Father. He's invisible, but the Son in His resurrected body called the Lamb, capital L, is there too. And these elders and 24, uh, the beast and the 24 elders say, Hallelujah and Amen, so be it, that God has done this. Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. Oh, this idea of praising God in worship, the great jewel of the church, and yet the great forgotten activity of the church. We're to come every time we open the doors of the church to assemble. It ought to be uh, a period of worship, a, a praise assembly. And that's what we come together to do. Now, of course, we should worship and praise God personally every day. Every day you get up, you ought to have time with God. I've taught that to our people. I've tried to practice that in my own life. Uh, practice a daily time with God, at least in your routine. You might take vacation, you might have a day off and you're doing something early, but for the most part, in your routine of life and work and so forth, you ought to get up uh, at least 30 minutes earlier than before you have to be somewhere. If not more than that, if you can spend more, but at least 30 minutes and spend time in God's Word and in prayer, meditation. This is part of worship. Look at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. I think these are the ones on earth. We just talked about those in heaven. This could be very much those on earth uh, and, and all of them put together as a voice of many waters. It's not waters, but their voice is so loud and strong and powerful, it's like the oceans. And as the voice of mighty thunderings. Look what they're saying. Hallelujah. There it is again. Hallelujah is the universal word of praise. Give honor to God. Glory and majesty do unto Him only. And I love this last phrase, past the hallelujah here, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth omnipotent. Potent means powerful. They used to talk about medicine. Man, that medicine's potent. It means it's powerful. 
Omni means all-powerful. There's no one like God. His characteristics of omnipotence, omniscience, all-knowing, and omnipresent. He's present everywhere at the same time. Well, let's move on. After this great declaration of praise for destroying this wicked system, we go on to study now and read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is very interesting. Let's continue our reading uh, beginning in verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, along with this great hallelujah chorus that we've seen in the first passage, now we see this declaration of praise for the Lamb to be married to her wife, or his wife. The Lamb and His wife, the Lamb and His bride, which we know is Christ and His church. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. Uh, why? Because God has now allowed His Son, the Lamb, to be married unto His wife. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. Now, we've got to get into a little bit of controversial teaching here. And again, I have to, as a pastor and student of the Scripture and teacher, uh, come to the best possible consensus that I see in Scripture about these teachings. There are things in the area of prophecy and end times teaching that are somewhat gray. I will admit that. Uh, but this whole idea of what, what is this marriage of the Lamb? What are, who is the bride of Christ? And when does this wedding take place? When does this wedding take place? Well, <clears throat> I believe that the bride of Christ consists of the Lord's church. Now, it's demanded then that we define the Lord's church. And I understand that my position is not the majority position, but I still strongly hold to an ecclesiology or doctrine of the church that says that the church represents the called-out assembly, the local body, wherever God's people meet as a local church. And that's kind of a redundant statement. The word church, I think, is a localized entity. Uh, to have a, an assembly, it has to be assembled at one place or it can't be an assembly. And so I believe the church is local. And so I believe the bride of Christ consists of his churches all throughout uh, church history that have carried out his work. Now, I know that there is this popular belief that the church is all the saved of all time or all the saved in the New Testament time since the day of Pentecost and until the rapture. I respect that. I understand there's people who hold to that, and I don't part fellowship with, with people over this. But as a pastor who has to teach all the counsel of God, I think the ecclesiology that I uh, come up with from the Scripture would teach the church as the local assembly. Now, there is the family of God. There's the kingdom of God. These other entities that I do think represent all the saved. All the saved of all time represents the family. All the saved at any one given time would represent the kingdom. But I think the church represents a specific group. And can there be someone who's saved and not in the church? Well, according to my ecclesiology, there can be. Some people would 
disagree with that. And that's okay. That's their business. But as I look at this, I think this is the marriage of the bride who is Christ's churches, his church. You could use the word as, as a whole entity. That's true because it would re- represent anyone who's been a part of any one of the Lord's churches down through time. The first church of Jerusalem was the only church that existed at that time. But since then, as the churches have, have expanded and, and spread across the earth, there's been people a part of the Lord's churches in every age. And I think those who have been a part of the Lord's churches will be a part of this bride. That's what this bride consists of. And at this time, finally, the bride is going to be married to her husband. Now, we see a lot about the Jewish wedding uh, analogy or illustration in the New Testament, or maybe not a lot, but at least it's brought up. And we do know that basically the teaching is that when a, a, a man desired to marry a woman, uh, of course his parents were involved and her parents were involved. I wouldn't call it an arranged marriage as we would think of it in a negative way, but the parents always had some say-so. And some of the interesting things were that when the man uh, desired to marry uh, a woman and, and to pursue her, um, the parents had to agree, but the father of the groom, the, the future husband, would make his son wait until his son was ready for, for marriage by making sure he built a house or maybe purchase a house. You can say we're not sure exactly how every case would have been carried out, but at least he had to have a home where he can bring home his new bride and they can start their family uh, one interesting little caveat seems to be that the uh, the home that the husband, the future husband, would build uh, was connected on his father's property because he would get the inheritance from his father when his father passed away. So uh, there's some great teaching there. I don't have time to develop it fully here, but just to say that when he was done building his house and the father felt it was sufficient, it was adequate, it was done correctly, he could go get his bride. We get this picture when Jesus gives the analogy of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, and, and the bridegroom comes for his bride, and five are ready and five are not. Well, it's just simply a picture that we that are truly the Lord's church and serving him and loving him and ready to marry him, we need to be ready. We need to be, we have to have the Holy Spirit in us. We have to be uh, awake and prepared for his coming because he could come at any time. And in that particular parable, he comes at midnight when Five of the virgins were asleep and their lamps had went out. Well, uh, the, the, the idea is simply this. I believe that when the rapture happens, all Christians will be raptured. That's true. But a particular group of Christians that will be raptured, which will represent his church, will be married unto him. At every marriage, every wedding ceremony, there are guests. Not everybody marries the man or the groom. There's a bride and there's a groom and there's guests. There's witnesses. And I think that at this marriage that we're going to refer to now in this passage, I think you're going to have Old Testament saints there. I think you're going to have many Christians who were not in one of the Lord's churches but were saved people. Thank God you don't have to be a part of a church to be saved. We know that. The Bible's clear on that. And so we're seeing this marriage take place. Notice what it says. And his wife hath made herself ready. That's interesting. Uh, What does that mean? Well, At the rapture, we think, and I've kind of hinted at this and got into a little bit earlier in our series, Understanding the End, which was a different and separate study from this verse-by-verse study of Revelation. 
but we talked about how that right after the rapture, it's very likely that the what we call the judgment seat of Christ will take place. That's when all Christians who have been raptured shall stand before the Lord and be given rewards or the lack of rewards for their service done for the Lord on earth. Now, it appears to me that by this time we're near the end of the tribulation and this marriage, which we think will take place in heaven, but will come down onto the earth for the reception, we might call it, for the celebration of it. And I'll get into that a little bit into chapter 21. But for now, let me just say, I think this wife making herself ready is part of the idea of the judgment seat of Christ that has already taken place. And the rewards are given out for faithful Christians. This is very logical. Let me just throw in this reasonable idea. Um, we know that not every Christian is going to be rewarded the exact same in heaven. Uh, God is fair and just. And we know this from uh, parables like the parable of the talents, where one man had five talents, another, another had uh, two, another had one. Uh, one bore a hundredfold, another, another sixtyfold and thirtyfold and so on. What we're simply teaching, and Jesus indicates this in these parables, that not every Christian will accomplish as much, not everyone will be as devoted as another Christian, and it's only fair and right that those who have dedicated more will be rewarded more. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Not every Christian suffers as much as the next Christian. And so not every Christian is going to reign in the exact same way. And I think there'll be special acknowledgement to the bride of Christ and those who have been the most devoted and, and uh, committed to Christ. I think that's only fair and right. Just like, by the way, there are degrees of punishment in hell. Not everybody will suffer in hell to the same degree. Jesus spoke of in the Gospels, he said about the Pharisees, you shall receive greater damnation. How can you have greater damnation unless you have less, lesser damnation? Of course you have to have degrees. And so degrees of punishment would equate to degrees of reward. And I think those who have been the most faithful, the most dedicated, and I've known many of these kind of wonderful Christians. We're not talking about just preachers or full-time missionaries. We're talking about great laymen, great uh, church members who have loved God and served and given and prayed and witnessed and lived holy all their lives. And they're going to be among the, the people that are part of this bride and rewarded to be with their husband who is Christ, our husband who's Christ. Now notice it says that her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. This is like a bride wearing her bridal gown, the beauty of it, clean and white, a picture of her purity and of her righteousness and of the reward she's received. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints, the righteousness, right standing, the right living, See, we have a right standing by Christ, but then we're to live out that by right living, and we're rewarded for that. Now notice in verse 9, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, there's two, two ways of looking at verse 9, and I'll give you both ways and tell you which one I tend to lean towards. Um, this being called to the marriage is like an invitation. If you're called, you're invited. Okay, and he says, blessed are, are those who are called to the marriage. Now, this could consist of all those who come to the wedding. That's true. And we believe that could be Old Testament saints who will be in heaven already. Uh, it could mean all those who have ever been saved would be called to this wedding. I think they will be. 
or it could refer to a specific reference to the bride herself. And this would mean how blessed you are to be the special, uh, what we might call the special attraction. If you've ever been, and I know everyone has, you've been to a wedding, you see that the bride is like the center of attraction. Now, I have to say that this wedding is going to really be the lamb. This is one time where the groom upstands the, the bride. But nonetheless, this bride is important. And I think this invitation could be uh, an invitation to be blessed by being asked to come to the wedding because you're part of the bride, but it also could be just a blessing for all, even the guests and the witnesses who will be there. Whoever comes is going to be blessed to see the lamb married to his bride, the wife. Now, John is so overcome by uh, this, this whole spectacle of the marriage of the lamb and her bride that it says in verse 10, <coughs> excuse me, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, this is something we're going to see again in chapter 22 at the end of this book. We saw it back in the book of Acts. If you remember your study of the book of Acts, remember when Peter uh, was asked by the Lord, told by the Lord he was to go to the house of Cornelius, this Gentile, and give him the gospel. And the gospel was supposed to be spread to not just to Jews, to Gentiles, and it was a great opening up of a door of the gospel and church work to the Gentiles. Well, you remember what Cornelius did? He was so overcome, he had seen a vision by the Lord. The Lord told him Peter was going to come and so on. When he sees Peter, he's so overcome with, with gratitude, uh, just the awe and wonder of the whole thing, that he falls at Peter's feet to worship Peter. And Peter says immediately the same thing this angel is going to say to John, get up. I myself also am a man. Notice this. And he said unto me, look at verse 10 again, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now, this is interesting. Whoever is showing John this wedding, and he's seeing these things, we've been seeing them referred to as angels most of the time, and it still could be an angel, but by that description, it tends to make me think it's, it's someone even more special, probably one of the beast or the 24 elders. He says, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. That tends to me to, 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 to denote a saved person. Uh, angels aren't what we'd call saved people. The holy angels have never had to be saved. They were created in purity and innocence, and those who did not rebel with Lucifer and were cast out of heaven remained holy, obedient angels, and will so for the rest of eternity. That's a, a little bit of angelology that's taught in the, in the Scripture. Uh, so I don't uh, think that this person who, who uh, John falls at, at his feet is an angel. It's another, it's another believer. It's some... Uh, and I can't say who, we can't be sure who. I'm relating to the elders in the, in the four beasts from verse 4. They have been a frequent uh, group mentioned. One of them could be this group, but it seems to be a saved person. They have the testimony of Jesus. That's a word that's applied to saved people. You have a testimony that you've been saved. You show, you testify that you've been born again, that your life has been changed by Christ. Well, he goes on and says, uh, don't do it. Worship God. That's exactly what Peter would say to Cornelius. Exactly what John will be told to do at the end of the book. For some reason, 
I don't know why, but John falls into the same uh, problem again. Uh, he falls down at the feet of the angel in chapter 22 and verse 8, and he's told the same thing. Don't do it. Now, I can't move on before saying this. Um, raised in Roman Catholicism, just telling you my feelings about the whole Catholic system. I'm not anti-Catholic person. I'm anti-Catholic doctrine. I do not think it is true Christian doctrine. I think it should be shown as a cultic, false Christianity. But how many times have you seen, and it has been uh, documented just so often that it cannot be denied, how many of these poor, groveling, uh, naive people will grovel up and kiss the Pope's ring or his feet or, or in some way worship him and fall down at his feet. It's, it's shown many, many, many times. And not just the present Pope, but every Pope that you could pretty much watch a video or see pictures of, it's happened for centuries. And I don't see one of those Popes ever saying to those people, get up, I myself am a man. Isn't that amazing? Here these, these an angel and Peter himself, and now some fellow servant or the brethren, a, a Christian, whoever this is, they always tell people to fall at their feet, don't worship me, get up, only worship God. I've never seen the Pope do that. I think this is idolatry. I think this whole idea of worshiping a man, uh, the whole doctrine of papal infallibility, it's a, it's a, a obscene abomination to think that a man at any point in his life, even the apostles didn't claim this, that he could speak what they call ex cathedra or directly from God and anything he says about faith and morals is to be held as infallible, without error, inerrant, like the scripture, equal to the scripture. That is false. That is a total denial of the Bible's authority. And that alone ought to make any Catholic second guess the movement they're involved in. Well, here we see this angel, or this man, I should say, this believer tell John, worship only God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an interesting um, statement. We're not familiar with it. It's not really used that way anywhere else. But I think it means that the whole, the whole story of Christ includes prophecy. I told you when we started this study, when I did the study Understanding the End, how important Bible prophecy is. Oh, I'll tell you, it's, it's one of the great subjects in all the Bible. Um, uh, scholars have stated that 25% of the Scripture uh, was prophetic when it was written. Now, some of it was already has already been fulfilled because it related to like the first coming of Christ or other events that would happen to Israel or Old Testament people. But... 25% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written, one out of four verses. And there's still a lot of Bible prophecy unfulfilled. We know that. All these events that we're really studying in the book of Revelation are yet to come about, right? We're looking into prophecy. Definitely this is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus, uh, his second coming is prophetic. He foretold it. He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also and he referred to his second coming, important chapters like Matthew 24, books like 2 Thessalonians, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets even as well. It's all throughout the Bible. And so when it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, boy, that is a very, very literal statement. Uh, thank God that 
uh, Jesus hasn't went away forever and, he, and, he's, and he, he'd be gone forever. Uh, how tragic would that be? If, if Jesus wasn't coming back, I mean, yeah, we'd have the memory of him. We, we might say, we're, well, we're going to go to be with him when we die. And that's sadly what some people believe. There's literally Christian groups that do not believe anything about a second coming. They deny that's even going to happen. They, they have uh, either allegorized or, or the prescient group has said that all these prophecies have already taken place back in 70 A.D. And uh, it's just complete, in my opinion, nonsense. Uh, there's no spirit of prophecy in those people's teaching or thinking and in their Bible interpretation. But Jesus here is called the spirit of prophecy, of uh, foretelling the future, because there's a great future coming for us. You and I that are saved are going to be with the Lord one day forever and ever. He's going to reign literally from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then set up a new heavens and new earth. And these are all things that I'm jumping ahead a bit. That's going to be our emphasis at the end of this book. So we're going to stop for today. Uh, we've done a couple minutes early, but that's okay. We'll pick up a new passage beginning in verse 11 next week because it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be one of the great passages in all the book of Revelation where Jesus visibly to every eye is going to appear and come back from heaven and take his place on earth. And so thank you for listening. Remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.